Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. It's easy to believe in God. When life is good, oh yeah. When the marriage is strong, the kids are healthy, finally bagged that promotion at work, finally booked those tickets to Mexico. But everyone comes to a crossroads in their lives where they gotta make a choice. That's not if, it's when. My husband died. I was left to raise three kids on my own. I found out I had breast cancer. I was scared of dying. My anger was controlling me. I was pushing everyone in my life away. I mean, do you continue to trust God when your life, everything that you know, falls apart? I mean, just falls away? When that person that you thought would never leave does? Those investments that you thought were a sure thing aren't? And that firm foundation isn't firm. Yeah, it's easy to worship a God that always answers your prayers just the way you want him to. It's easy. It's simple to walk confidently when the, when the road is smooth and the path is clear. You can see for miles and miles, no surprises. What happens when you get knocked off course? When the, when the choice, well, any choice, seems unbearable. Do you choose the path that's difficult or unknown? The path that you can't see the end of? The one that you know is going to be a tough one to follow? I had times when I was angry at God. I couldn't bear the thought of being alone. I was so confused. How could my family live without me? I was angry at everyone, including God. I thought I didn't need help. Can you uh, still believe in a good God, even though your life no longer is? Can you trust a God that seems untrustworthy? Can you still believe, even though you don't understand. I've lost my husband, but I haven't lost my God. I didn't choose this journey, but I can choose how I walk it. I can't fix me, 
I had to turn my will over to him. Choices have consequences. Every turn takes you down a different path to a different destination. Faith. Faith asks us to believe in something that we cannot see. To trust something that we don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure of very many things. I'm sure that God has given us all that he is. Maybe the least that we can do is give him all that we are, no matter what the circumstances. My journey is far from over. I still have many hard days. And I'm faced with new crossroads every day. I choose to walk the road with Jesus. It's hard. But it's a lot easier with Jesus than without him. When you come to the crossroads in life, choose well. Well, I want to welcome all of you here at Central Campus and also those of you who are joining us online, also those of you meeting together at one of our other regional campuses in Airdrie, Bridgeland, in South Calgary, and also in uh, the Crowfoot Theatres in Northwest Calgary. Um, we're in a study of the book of James, and I invite you to open your Bibles uh, now to the first uh, chapter of James. And if you were away last weekend, I, wanna, uh, I gave an introduction to the book of James, uh, which I think you'll find very informative and helpful in understanding and applying the message of this book to your life, and also the spirit of the book to your life, the nature of what faith really is. And so I encourage you to get a copy from Appleseed or to watch it online. I'm going to invite you to stand with me um, and uh, join me in reading uh, the verses 2 to 12. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you um, for your word. We thank you for James, who you inspired, Lord, to write these words. 
Um, we pray, Lord, that as we now look more closely at what James was communicating here, Lord, that we would truly understand your intent of these words. We would understand your heart. And Lord, you would remove distractions. Lord, that you would um, focus our minds and Lord, you'd give us the courage to respond in whatever way you'd have us to. For we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I'm sure many of you will remember a guest speaker we had here a little over a year ago by the name of Nabil Qureshi. Nabil grew up in a devout Muslim family and in his college years was challenged by a Christian roommate to examine the Christian faith. And he took up the challenge, not only doing a very critical analysis of the Christian faith, but then following it up with a critical analysis of his own Muslim faith. In the end, the evidence for the Christian faith was so strong and compelling that he could no longer deny the evidence. And even though he knew it would have a cataclysmic impact on his life and on his relationship with his family going forward. Eleven years ago, he became a follower of Jesus Christ. And since that time, he has traveled all over the world telling his stories at universities, churches like ours, wherever people invite him to. He's written three books, including Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. He married Michelle, and together they have one daughter. Well, as some of you have heard, two weeks ago after some medical tests, Nabil received the news that he has advanced stomach cancer. Um, and the clinical prognosis is quite grim. Now, when I first heard the news of this, I, I found myself thinking, Lord, why would you allow this to happen to such a faithful servant of yours who is such an influential voice today and has an incredibly compelling story testifying to your reality the truth of the Bible and the gospel message it just didn't make sense to me now the reality is we will all face trials in verse 2, James does not say if you face trials. No, he says whenever. He says when you face trials. In other words, expect it. Trials are a part of life. Jesus said in this world, you will have trouble. Now when trials come our way because of poor decisions on our part, or even because of the decisions of other people, who are hurtful or selfish or greedy or unfaithful or immoral and their behaviors have an impact on us we understand the reasons behind those kind of trials but when trials seem to come out of nowhere like Nabil's cancer we struggle understanding why God would allow this so let me ask you what trial are you facing right now can you identify it? I want you to be consciously aware of the trial that you are undergoing right now as we go through this passage. What's sucking the life out of you? 
Maybe it's a health issue that's just lingering on or maybe getting worse. Maybe it's a child with special needs or health issues. Maybe it's your job. You feel like you're just putting in time. Or someone at work is is driving you crazy. Or you can't find a job at all. And you've lost all confidence to keep trying. Or it's your marriage. You're giving and giving. And nothing is coming back. The list of trials is long. In fact, James says we face trials of many kinds. But the question we often wrestle with is why? Why, God? Why are you allowing this trial in my life? Why aren't you taking it away? I mean, I've prayed so much about this situation that I I just don't even have the words to pray anymore or the will to pray. Why, God? Well, in the passage we just read, James addresses these questions. James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now we read that and our knee-jerk reaction is, are you kidding me? You want me to smile? You want me to delight in this gut-wrenching trial that I'm just going through right now? Now I realize this is what this verse seems to be saying. Which is why I highly recommend that you don't quote it or read it to someone who's grieving, all right? Because they may throw something at you. But even though it, you know, this is what it seems to be saying at first glance, it is not what James is meaning. I mean, trials can be painful, hurtful, they can be gut-wrenching, and it's okay to despise them and to want them to go away. What James is saying here is when you meet the real Jesus, like he did, as we talked about last time, when you meet the real Jesus like he did, did the day that Jesus appeared to him live and well after his death and burial, when you put your trust in the all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere-present God, the living Christ, you're going to respond to those trials differently than those who do not know or trust in the living Christ. Because you are going to see those trials differently. You are going to see them more from God's perspective rather than from your finite, limited human perspective. Because there is a faith in you. There is a knowledge that you have of the character of God that leads you to respond and to think differently about that trial. This past week I read about a survey that was conducted some time ago which asked people, how do you respond to hardships? The number one answer was, we complain. Some people put a lot of energy into painting themselves as victims. They feel sorry for themselves. They complain and whine to whoever will listen. 
The number two answer was they blame. They lash out and try to somehow pin the blame on others in their lives. Or they blame God. Over the years, I've had people tell me in no uncertain terms that they don't believe in God, but then go on to blame the God they don't believe in for the trials they're going through. You see, some people blame. The third answer is they escape. They either escape through alcohol, substance abuse, television, sleep, or overeating. Or they just give up and walk away. They say, I didn't sign up for this. This isn't why I became a Christian. This isn't why I got married. You know, I'm out of here. And James essentially says here, that's how people without Jesus respond. But when you put your trust in Jesus, everything changes. You see trials from his perspective. And when you dial into his perspective and realize he truly loves you, that he's a good God, he has your best interests at heart, you will actually be able to respond to trials, says James, with joy rather than anger and bitterness. In short, it's not the trial itself that's the basis of our joy. Rather, it is the expectation of the outcome of that trial. What God wants to accomplish in us through the trial, like the development of our character, the the strengthening of our faith in God that leads us to rejoice in adversity. Also, there's a difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is fleeting. It's based on the circumstances of life. I mean, if things are going well, we are happy. If things are not going well, if things are falling apart, we're sad, we're mad, and an assortment of other things. Joy, on the other hand, comes to those. It's not something that you achieve. No, no, it's a gift of God. Joy comes to those who put their faith totally in God and believe that God is good and trustworthy, that he has our best interests at heart, and that he will use this trial to accomplish his very best in my life for his glory. Many of you will remember Johnny, who was with us, you know, just a few months ago. She's paralyzed from the neck on down that she suffered as a result of a diving accident when she was 17. That was over 50 years ago. She's been in a wheelchair for 50 years. And when she was with us, she said, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. She said, I'd rather be in this wheelchair with him than on my feet without him. You see, she understands God's heart. His heart in trials. And that is why joy characterizes her life so profoundly. I mean, did you notice that? And before we go on, I just want to add this point. 
that as we work through uh, what James is teaching here in this passage on how we're to respond to trials, even though James doesn't touch on it here, if you go over to chapter 5, he challenges us to pray about our trials. Specifically, he says, if some of you are sick, call the elders together, be anointed with oil, and pray about these things. Praying for healing, praying that a trial be taken away is a, a very, very good thing. We are called to pray. Jesus prayed that the cup of suffering that he was about to endure on the cross, that it be taken away. And he ended up saying, not my will, but yours be done. But his will was that it be taken away. Paul prayed three times for his mysterious thorn in the flesh to be taken away. If God answers our prayer and we are delivered from our trial, we can be sure that he has done so for our benefit and for our growth. And we can therefore celebrate. No differently than when he chooses not to remove the trial. What James is dealing with here in chapter 1 is how we need to see trials and respond to trials while they continue to linger in our lives. And so with that in mind, James goes on to explain why we can rejoice when trials come our way. And first of all, trials test our faith. James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith. The Greek word for trial means to stress test something. The heat of a trial reveals how genuine, how strong your faith really is. Unfortunately, far too many people in North America You know, they're listening to hipster preachers with tight jeans who are only teaching half the gospel. And consequently, they they raise their hand in a service like this to become a follower of Jesus for what he can do for them. They think that adding Jesus to their life will be their ticket to the good life. But when God doesn't come through with the goods that they want, or when he doesn't come through with the goods when they want it, or should trials come, well, they didn't sign up for that. And they bail. The heat of trial really tests your faith. Whether you are, in fact, a true follower of Jesus Christ. The heat of a trial also forces you to examine your faith. You know, the greatest biblical account of faith being tested is the story of Job. He lost everything. I mean, he literally lost everything. And he was enduring physical pain. And as you read the story you see different theologies being expressed. His friends said, Job, 
you know, hate to tell you this, but it's your fault. That's what they believed. You're in God's doghouse. That's why you're going through this trial. His wife said, God's the problem. So what I'd suggest to you, Job, is curse God and die. Just a real encouraging wife. (laughs) Now, the reality is Job was not happy about what he was facing. And he challenged God with a battery of questions, and he let God know his true feelings, but he refused to relinquish his faith in God. Even though his wife was convinced that God is a sadistic despot who delights in our pain, Job tenaciously hung on to his belief that God is good. Or as we read in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 33, that God does not willingly bring affliction or grief on anyone. All that to say the heat of trials are often God's way of getting our attention and forcing us to examine what it is we believe, why we believe it, to kind of test the foundation upon which we stand. And then to drive down a stake that this or these are our convictions. You know, if you watch Nabil's latest blog, after he tells the story of what's happened the last couple of weeks, he reviews his faith right back to God. And he just makes, watch it, it'll encourage you. He's basically saying, it is upon this I stand. When trials come, we find ourselves in situations of asking, is my trust truly in the Lord? Or is it divided? Do I really believe God is good and has my best interests at heart? no matter what circumstance I face? Do I believe that God is for me and wants to form Christ in me? Can I keep trusting even though I don't fully understand this trial or like this trial? Do I believe that he is in control, that nothing misses his attention, including the trial that I'm facing right now? You know, Psalm 27, 13 says, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And what the psalmist is saying here, I would have given up in times of hardship unless I believed certain things about my God, including the fact that he's an incredibly faithful and good God. Trials test our faith. And friends, this is why being in the Word, 
regularly receiving teaching from the word like you are right now has to be a priority because it reviews, it reminds us of the foundation we stand upon and helps us to stand up during trials. Secondly, trials lead us to maturity. Again, James says, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Dr. Henry Cloud and Dr. John Townsend, they tell the story of a young mother named Kara who was terribly unorganized in every aspect of her life. She was bad with money. She was late for everything. Her house was a complete mess. No task ever got checked off on her endless list of things to do. And she was frustrated, which is why she came to them, actually, for counseling. Now, when Kara recalled her childhood, it's interesting to note that she realized that her parents did everything for her. She never learned how to handle money, how to schedule her life, how to clean her room. Her parents did not teach her any discipline. And so, as you can well imagine, her growing up years were like a princess. I mean, feet up on the coffee table and hands behind the head and, you know, everything's done for her. Pretty cool. Time of growing up. But now, being married and the mother of a child... Her life was a total mess. And so with the help of Dr. Townsend and the accountability of her husband and friends, she went through the slow and the painful process of learning the disciplines that she never learned as a child. Now I share that story because isn't it true that most everything that we have learned to do in life came through the exercise of discipline? We learn to ride a bike by getting on a bike and falling, skinning our knees until we finally got it. Learning to do math, my favorite subject, required countless painful hours of instruction and disciplined learning. I dare say there isn't anything we do, reading, writing, anything, you name it, that didn't require some form of repetitive discipline learning. And for most of, and, and most of it was hard and often included emotional pain when we failed and physical pain when we fell. Now, I think we understand that. But here's the thing. If this is the way God has ordained that we mature physically and mentally, why would we conclude that God doesn't mature us this way spiritually? Why do we have this idea that, that God's just going to snap his fingers and we're going to be instantly mature? Why do we resist the idea that our loving God wouldn't use trials to mature us, to make us complete, to make us more like Christ? 
to grow our love, to grow our patience, or as James points out here, to build perseverance in our lives. I mean, think about a, a time when you um, encountered a trial somewhere in your past. As much as you didn't like that trial, can you see, or even begin to see, how because you persevered through that trial, you grew closer to God? You became a little bit more like Jesus? You're a little bit more mature in your walk with God today? James MacDonald, he says, if you're playing a sport and you badly sprain your ankle, you will be out of commission for a week or longer. I've had that happen to me. But he says, if you will fill a bucket with ice water and put your foot right in that ice water after the injury, your ankle will heal significantly faster. Now, the problem is putting your foot in that ice bucket, right? I've done it, and it was almost unbearable. And everything inside of you doesn't want to put it in there, and even if you put it in there, it doesn't want to keep it in there very long. McDonald says, if you leave it in there for one minute, it won't help your ankle very much. But if you leave it in there for two minutes the recovery time will be cut in half. If you hang in there for three minutes or longer, even though at this point you want to die, you will be walking on your foot or on that ankle the next day. But you see, it is hard. It is painful. And so it is with trials. They're so hard, they're so painful, but if we persevere and not get bitter and exit, God will accomplish his good purposes in our life. If we bail, if we short-circuit the process, God won't accomplish what he intended to accomplish in your life. It's hard keeping your foot in the bucket. It's easier to walk out of a room during an argument than to stay there and work through the conflict. It's easier to gossip about someone or to harbor bitterness against someone who has hurt you than to go and to seek reconciliation. Sometimes it seems easier to leave a difficult job or a difficult marriage, or to pull away from a frustrating friend. But often when we do that, it short-circuits what God is trying to do in us. You know, Francis Chan reminds us that years ago, a silversmith, he would put silver in a pot, and he would heat it up until the silver was liquid. And as he did so, all the impurities would come to the surface. And the silversmith would then skim off the dross, and he would keep heating it, so that more and more of the dross would come up, and he'd keep skinning it off, 
skimming it off. And do you know when the silversmith knew that the silver was pure? When he could see his reflection in it. You know, there are those who teach, if you follow Jesus, he'll make everything wonderful. He'll take away your hardship and pain. He'll make you rich and happy. But the truth is, God didn't redeem us solely to make us happy, healthy, and free of trouble. No, he redeemed us to be in relationship with us and to make us more like Jesus. God's goal for you and me is he wants us to be so close, so surrendered and trusting in him that our lives are a reflection of him. We're his representatives on this planet. It's why we're still here and not in heaven, folks. And it's the trials that bring us to that place of surrender, that make us more like him, that open up our lives more to the fruit of his love, his joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, self-control, gentleness, And then thirdly, trials help us to see our need for God. Look down at verse 9. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation. You'll notice the word pride is really dominant in that passage I just read. James is getting at the issue of pride here. Pride is doing life without God. It's sort of the attitude of the person who gets up and says, you know what? My bank account's healthy. You know, things are going good at work. You know, I'm healthy. Family's doing good. How you doing, Lord? If I need you, I'll be in touch. I think I got this. And go about their day. That's the heart of pride. And pride reveals itself in two ways. One way it reveals itself is through our conceit. Which says, it's all about me. I'm at the center of the universe. And because I am strong, and as we read in James's passage here, and because I'm rich, I'm going to succeed. I've got this. But there's a shadow side to pride. Pride also reveals itself through our insecurity, which says it's all about me. And because I am weak, or feel weak, and because I am poor, I'm going to fail. 
You see, conceit and insecurity are both forms of pride in the sense that they both function without God. And you see, where God wants us is in that place of total surrender, a place of humility that realizes it's not about us at all. My hope is not in my strength or my lack of strength. My hope is in God and His strength. When she was here, Johnny said, God is bigger to those who need Him most. And God is small to those who need Him least. Which is why He resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7, the Apostle Paul indicates that he was given a mysterious trial in the form of a thorn in the flesh to keep him from being conceited. To always remind him that it is not through his strength or through his vast array of giftedness, but through his weakness his dependence on God that amazing things are accomplished. God used trials not only to work in Paul to keep him from arrogance, but God used it to work through Paul because remember Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Your dependence on me. All that to say, whether we feel weak or strong, whether we feel poor or rich, God uses trials to remind us that we're all on the same playing field when it comes to the trials of life. And that in the end, it is not how much stuff you have, but who you are in Jesus Christ. And he uses trials to remind us that it isn't about our, our capacity, but about our trust in his capacity to do more than we could ask or think. Again, Johnny sums it up best this way. She said, I hope I can take my wheelchair to heaven with me. I know that's not biblically correct. But if I were able, I would have my wheelchair up in heaven right next to me when God gives me a brand new glorified body. And I will then turn to Jesus and say, Lord, do you see that wheelchair there? Well, you were right when you said, in this world we will have trouble. Because that wheelchair was a lot of trouble. But Jesus, the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. So thank you for what you did in my life through that wheelchair. And now I always say jokingly, you can send that wheelchair to hell if you want. That is why we can rejoice in trials. So how do we deal with trials that come our way? 
First of all, when trials come, see the trial from God's perspective. Verse 2, James says, consider it pure joy. The word consider means think it through. Think about it. If your dream is the good life, the way it's defined by our culture, then every trial is going to be a roadblock to that dream. And you are going to be miserable. I read recently about a study that indicated that Instagram leads to people feeling depressed. Kind of caught my attention. Now here's why. Again, people want to live the dream, right? And unfortunately, many Christians are on the same bandwagon. We're just on this cultural trip. We want to have the good life. So here's the problem. Maybe you've noticed, maybe you haven't, but life is hard. Has its challenges. And so, just as a for instance, let's just say you're a housewife today. And you are barely making it financially. Your house is a total mess. Your husband is never home, and when he's home, he's mentally absent. He's really not home. You never go anywhere as a family, and you're feeling terribly physically. I mean, you need to lose 10 pounds, and you can't find the time to exercise at all. But here you are. You've been kind of down, so you've just consumed two huge bags of chips, a pizza, a liter of pop, and a bucket of ice cream. And of course, now you're feeling worse. You're feeling worse about yourself. You're feeling worse about your life, your family life, and then you grab your phone and you scroll through the Instagram account and what do you see? Well, everyone's looking fit and trim having the time of their life as they work out. Everyone's marriage is just doing awesome. I mean, their kids look incredible. They're laughing. They're having wonderful family times in the park. Look at that. Isn't that cute? They're planning a three-week vacation. Life just seems to be so good for everyone else. And you feel like your life is polar opposite to theirs. And you start to resent them. And you find that that's not paying huge dividends. And so you start blaming your spouse. You start getting resentful toward your kids or your parents or whoever it is that's around you. And the end result is they back away from you. And you're even more alone and depressed. And James essentially says, think about this. Think about the path that you're on. Is this really your goal in life? Is it really about living the good life? Living a little better than everyone else in your sphere of influence? Having little better posts on Instagram than they are? He says, think about it. If your dream is the good life, 
As I said a moment ago, every trial is going to be a roadblock to that dream. Every trial, every disappointment is going to discourage you. But if you believe that life is found in living for that which matters, you're going to go in a totally different direction. You're going to seek a deeper friendship with Jesus and his kingdom purpose. And you're going to see trials differently. You're going to realize that the trials that come your way are actually, they've come through God's grid. And he allows it into your life in order to give you what you need, in order to shape you into your character, into the person that he wants you to be, in order to mature you in your faith. James says, don't fixate on the trial. You see, this is why people who don't know Jesus, they can't fixate on the future or why this trial even exists. All they can do is fixate on the trial. But as Christ followers, we can focus on what God is accomplishing through the trial. He says, think about it. The death of a loved one is horrible. But if they know the Lord, heaven awaits them, right? And folks, you know, heaven is not a second-class option. The pain of a trial can be gut-wrenching. But if it clarifies my values, if it draws me closer to God, if it burns away my pride and my self-centered ambition that's going nowhere, if it strengthens my love for other people and transforms me into the image of my Savior and leads me to live a life that's going to matter in the end, then all is not lost. In fact, something that I see as heavy and dark actually becomes a source of freedom and victory. Read about a story about a nun. It was apparently on the radio. True story. 85-year-old Margaret. She was a nun in a convent. The other th- sisters in the convent went away on a three-day retreat. And for reasons, she didn't go. So she was all alone in this building. She made her way down to the kitchen. She picked up some water, some salary sticks. Was heading back to her room when the elevator that she was on stopped mid-floor. Not a good thing. But not to worry, she had her cell phone. She pulled it out, but then she realized she couldn't get any signal inside the elevator shaft. And in that moment, she had a choice to make. Either to panic or to pray. She muttered to herself, well, it looks like I'm going to have a three-day prayer retreat. (laughs) She sat on the floor of the elevator and ate some of the salary, and then she prayed. Then she drank some of the water, and then she prayed reached into her purse and pulled out some candies and 
chewed on those. And then she prayed. Got tired, curled up on the sweater, made it her pillow. And she slept, but when her back began to hurt terribly, she prayed. And when the other sisters returned three days later and rescued her, they asked her what she did during her time in the elevator. And she said, well, I finally realized that God had provided an opportunity for me to draw closer to him. See, folks, that's the power of having God's perspective. Right now, some of you feel like you're stuck on an elevator. It's not going anywhere. You can't get out. You want to get off. You don't even understand why you're stuck in it. But you see, if you see it, this situation you're in, if you see it through the promises of God's word, you see it through God's perspective, this can be an opportunity that God has provided for you to draw closer to him. And then just quickly, when trials come, ask for wisdom. James writes this in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now, sadly, this verse has been abused, misused down through the years. I just won't even get into that. But we need to realize that, I mean, this verse is talking about trials. It's so sad, you know, when, when, when people will take a section like this, pull it right out of Scripture, and then come up with the theology of it, independent of the context in which you find it. This verse is talking about trials. James is saying, if you are trying to make sense of the trial that you're facing, and you want to know what he's wanting to do in you through the trial, if you perhaps want to know how you should respond to it, maybe you're dealing with anger and bitterness over it, whatever it is that's on your mind, Ask him. Now he does say, if you ask, you should believe and not doubt, which means come to God with an open heart and with open hands. Doubt is when you have your own agenda. It's when you come to him with your own conditions. Like, okay, Lord, I'm ready to hear from you, but before you tell me, you know, I just want you to know, that I am not going to break up with my girlfriend. Just want you to know that. Or I, I'm not putting up with that person at work anymore. I just can't do it anymore. I'm quitting. Or I'm not going to work on my marriage anymore. I've tried and I'm done. And what James is saying here is, is do you want God's wisdom or don't you? About this trial you're going through. 
If we really want to know God's heart and his intention for us and what he's doing in us, we need to humble ourselves and we need to let go and we need to say, God, teach me whatever you want to teach me. Show me your way. Nothing is off limits. My hands are open to you. I'm putting my agenda aside. If you have your own preconditions, you really don't want to hear what God has to say to you. And as a result, you won't receive an answer from him. James says you're double-minded, which means you are a person who wants what God wants, but doesn't want what God wants. Double-minded. It's called partial surrender. Yes, Jesus, I want you in my life, Mm mm-hmm. But I also want this idol, this counterfeit God in my life too. I want it both. And those who live like this, those who live the life of partial surrender will receive from the Lord absolutely nothing. Viktor Frankl was a prisoner in a Nazi concentration camp during World War II. And after the war, he wrote this based on his experience. Everything can be taken from men but one thing. The last of human freedoms. The ability to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. Now, I agree with his observation. But I would quickly add that there is a far deeper, a far greater freedom that cannot be taken from any one of us. And that is our trust in God. Trials can be hard. But the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8:38, they can't separate us from Christ or the love of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says that they can never truly defeat us and they won't if our trust is firmly in the Lord. I'll close with this. I started out this message referring to Nabil Qureshi's dire health situation. In his blog, he wrote these words, which I think really summarizes what James teaches here and particularly gives us the reminder that the ultimate decision all of us must make is whether or not we will put our whole trust in the Lord. This is what he writes. In the past few days, my spirit has soared and sank as I pursued the Lord's will and consider what the future might look like. But never once have I doubted this, that Jesus is Lord. His blood has paid my ransom, and by his wounds I am healed. I have firm faith that my soul is saved by the grace and the mercy of the triune God, and not by any accomplishment or merit on my own. I am so thankful I am a child of the Father, redeemed by the Son and sealed in the Spirit. No, in the midst of the storm, I do not have to worry about my salvation. 
And for that, I praise you, God. I take my stand on Jesus Christ, the living Lord. Friends, it will all come down to this for all of us. In whom will we trust? That is the question. May our testimony be this, now and for eternity. Whether I have money and possessions or not, whether I am known or unknown, whether I endure trials or not, whether I live or die, only Christ satisfies. He is my all and all. Can you say amen to that? Would you stand with me, please? I want us to open our hands to the Lord and ask two, these two questions we become accustomed to. I want you to understand something, folks. And if we do not open our hearts to these two questions, our time together today will essentially have been wasted. And the two questions are this, Lord, what are you saying to me through this time together? And secondly, Lord, what do you want me to do about it? Take a moment now to allow the Spirit to speak to you about that. Take those questions home with you and continue. Let's just do that for a moment right now. you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.